This episode is brought to you by On Time. Do you have a friend or family member that is always late no matter what it is for or what time you tell them to be there? Now introducing the world's first watch that is set up to be fast. This is the perfect gift for those friends or family members that can never seem to be where they need to be on time. You can set this up one, two, three, or even four hours fast. So no matter what time you tell them to be there, they will be there on time. Hey, what's happening? Welcome to another episode of the podcast. I'm your host, John Saxon, and today's guest, we have none other than the infamous Jamie Bestwick. Jamie, we finally did it. We finally sat down and are able to have a podcast. This is exciting. I know we did one with Raymond, but this is one-on-one. This is special. Yep. Um, You always said you'd... You may need to pick the mic up a little bit. Uh, Okay. Sorry. You want to do this all over again? Because I totally blew it there and i had this like incredible you know well i wouldn't say incredible joke but i was about to say yes and you know you finally nailed me down uh to do a podcast but i didn't think you'd drive two nails into my legs to a wooden chair in order for me to do this podcast so kind of a dad joke um or not well you're preaching uh, to the choir so uh, i love it well you know or, or maybe it was a sophisticated joke or an unsophisticated joke i think i'm rambling but anyway maybe dad jokes are sophisticated regardless jokes. i'm here uh i'm attentive and um let's let's do this let's do this i'm excited well i'm glad that i was able to come to you here at the roastery the rothrock roastery which is exciting because this is fairly new territory for you guys because you're you're uh expanding your your uh your kingdom around state college with the with the the roastery that we have here uh providing the rothrock coffee and stuff how's this been going yeah it's been going good you know rothrock is in its fifth year at the cafe and uh we outgrew it um pretty quickly so we had to move all our coffee production uh, and we found this great space on the other side of town um it it turned out to be uh, really beneficial for us just to have the extra space to do, you know, all, all the things we'd ever wanted to, from, you know, test analysis of coffees to, you know, giving Dan the space to, to roast and, and Ronnie and uh, Joyce and Frank to, to have offices to where they could work out of. So, you know, it's really brought uh, Rothrock Coffee into... Um, you know, in, into a, a new a new space, so to speak. You know, we, we can definitely, you know, branch out into all the areas now that we wanted to. And, you know, one of those and, and, and having the offices and the equipment to do that is uh, all our online sales, which is, uh, you know, in this day and age of uh, COVID-19 has been uh, a big, a big portion of what we do now. Because of the parameters and restrictions of what, you know, CDC and local government uh, give out as guidelines. Is that because a lot of people don't want to travel and come out to the place? They just want to order it online and that kind of thing? Um, No, I think, you know, uh, I I think this pandemic has really forced people online. Um, You know, sometimes I think, you know... Um, and by the way, this is a joke. Uh, sometimes I, I feel like the pandemic was started by Jeff Bezos at Google because I'm, I'm sure he's uh, done incredibly well. Um, or, or is it Amazon? No, he's the Amazon guy. Yeah, that's right. Um, 
You know, I mean, online sales have been incredible, um, uh, but not only for big corporations like that, but I think for everybody in general. You know, you've you've had to adapt to, you know, a different market, and um, you know, you've had to, re- you know, I know for us, we had to reconfigure the way that we did business because we were generally a wholesale company that that serviced cafes and. Um, you know, restaurants and, and different food vendors. And, uh, you know, when everything got shut down, we had to move into an online platform or a, a bigger online presence, should I say. And through that, it's, it's just all about getting, you know, the brand out there, the coffee out there and, and just, you know, delivering on, on our message of producing great coffee. Great. I think, uh, and also for a future reference, you don't have to preemptively state that this is a joke coming at you. You can just try. <laughs> and I think I just, so. Uh, I don't want to get sued by Amazon for having a stab at, at their boss, but you know, like that guy is, he's just, what he's created is incredible. You know, to go from a bookstore to the world's biggest marketplace is a testament to uh, a great visionary, uh, a smart man. And, um, you know, really moving fast with the times and, and moving fast with business. And, you know, I think, uh, you know, there's no wonder why he's just a part of, uh, you know, the, the, the big companies. Like, he, he definitely is a, a powerhouse, you know, uh, from any business perspective and any budding entrepreneur. His story is fantastic. Well, I think uh, uh, any great businessman or a successful person whether or not they are uh i guess master of their own domain they're just able to take opportunities when they're open to them so when an opportunity comes up they know when to jump on it and when not to which i feel is kind of where he stood out on that one but we don't have to get too deep in the woods on jeff bezos i know i was excited to talk to you about jeff bezos for about (laughs) an hour or so if we could help it so uh maybe let's uh change the topic (laughs) just a little bit but i mean I guess kind of going back to where we were a little bit earlier, just going back to, to you here at Rothrock, what made you uh, want to start a coffee shop around town? I know uh, Carrie started the, the PYP, the, the yoga studio, um, but what made you want to start your own coffee shop here in town? You know, the, the benefits of um, turning a professional in BMX and having sponsorships. Is that what you do? Is that what you're known for? I think so, yeah. You know, I, I think I've done reasonably okay over the years <laughs> at a few events. Um, and, you know, ha- having that luxury to travel the world, I often spent my time looking for coffee shops. And the obvious introduction with Starbucks, etc., cetera, in, uh, in the early years were, was great, but when I would go away, I would also look for, you know, a specialty coffee shop because there always had to be something more than the mainstream um, with any industry, you know, and I enjoyed it. I, I really did. I enjoyed it. And the idea to bring a cafe came way, way back. We're talking 20 23 years ago now, I stepped into a motorbike store in England, in Derbyshire, and the back of the the back of the store had a cafe, and within the cafe there was a TV, there were tables, 
And it just gave uh, people in the cafe that were buying tea, that were buying cakes and sandwiches, an opportunity to you know, interact with each other. They all had a common theme, which was motorbikes, and they would watch motorbike racing. And I went in, and I, I thought to myself, wow, this is a really cool experience. I would love to do something like this. And, you know, fast forward a BMX career getting in the way, and when... You know, when contests on vert started to slow a little, I felt that that was the perfect opportunity for me to bring something to State College, Pennsylvania that I thought was, you know, was needed. And it was an opportunity to, for me to fulfill a goal. I'd always wanted to do something like this. I always had a great appreciation for coffee. So I, uh, I set about uh, building it, building the brand, and putting the right people in place in order to, you know, to, to fulfill the vision. And here we are five years down the line, and, you know, I might be biased towards our coffee, but uh, I'm, I'm always blown away with what the guys roast, what the guys source, and, uh, you know, that's why I, I, I feel it's some of the best coffee I've ever drank. Yeah. Know? I've been to a couple other places where I felt... You know, like wow, this is a great couple of couple of coffees that they have on 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 uh, their menu, or you know, a coffee. But you know, our our selection of coffees are just rock solid, and that is a testament to you know not only Frank and Ronnie sourcing and working with incredible farmers, but then you know when it arrives here, it's Dan. Um, and Dan is the head roaster, and he is so diligent in the work that he does with the roaster and the work that he does, you know, doing sensory uh, and, and taste analysis with our head of coffee, Frank, that it just produces excellent coffees every time, and he's always striving to be, to be better, uh, and, and that's a great trait in uh, any work environment. So you've had you've had like a coffee type shop or or whatever scenario roasting on the back burner for a while now I guess <laughs> that was a that was a joke as well. Yeah, I appreciated <laughs> that joke. It was a it was a coffee joke. It's a coffee joke. You'll you'll hear very few of those from me. So wunderbar. <laughs> so just to kind of spin this around full circle to something you said a little bit ago. Uh, Every industry has something other than the mainstream kind of going back. We'll circle this around to BMX, which apparently is what you're known for and why we're here. But, but I, I feel that's kind of where, where it all started. It's just going from the mainstream BMX companies, and then you started to have smaller companies uh, and, and riders kind of producing their own companies and things like that, which kind of drives the, drives the market to make a better, a better product, which is kind of where we're at now. But I feel at a point, and again, this is up for debate and maybe a, a good topic to start uh, going on this conversation is sooner or later, the, the market gets flooded with too many, maybe not too many, but there's, there's a lot. So the competition kind of it's not so much a competition as where who can do it cheaper kind of thing. And then it just kind of brings it down a little bit. Do, do you feel that's uh, that's accurate in the state of BMX right now? Yeah, I do, you know. Uh, but the way I look at BMX is pretty similar to the way I look at coffee. And, um, you know, you you have your, your big corporate companies 
And then below that, you have your standout BMX companies. So they were the ones that started small many years ago, and uh, now they're, they're very well established, and they sit in that kind of second wave of BMX companies. You know, they, they do incredibly well. They're very innovative. You know, uh, they're selling complete bikes, but they're selling complete bikes to the BMX industry and maybe not going through your Walmarts and your Targets, etc. And then you've got your, your kind of third wave, so to speak, and, and they are the entry-level companies. You know, they're, they're the guys trying to, uh, you know, to, to, to make a change and, and, you know, to, to be a part of an industry that um, they've been in for years, but maybe from a participant point of view. And, and now they're, they're, they're coming at it from, you know, an angle of wanting to do their own thing and branch out and, and just getting inspiration from, you know, the, the more established BMX companies because, you know, what they do and what they offer is, in this day and age, is absolutely incredible. You know, I, I don't think there's a bike company out there that really makes a bad, bad bike anymore. You know, they're all, all incredible. And, uh, you know, um, that this is how things get started. You know, you're always going to have brands that are, are always going to be the, the biggest selling brands. And, and you're always going to have brands that, you know, kind of uh, leave the market, you know, to, for, some, for some reason, you know, whether it's uh, financial or it's just a, a partnership split or it's just ran its course. You know, you're always going to have those companies that exit. Um, but then you'll always have those new companies that come in. And uh, is the market big enough? You know, uh, that's all determined by consumers. And going off this year, yeah, the market is. It's it's big enough. You know, bikes have been selling like hotcakes. And I don't think we've ever seen this level of participation, you know, from, uh, you know, from from people throughout the world. Um, however, you know, now we're seeing that, you know, the initial, you know, flooding of people into the bike market and the buying up of stock has brought its own different sets of problems. Um, and uh, that's the, uh, that's, that's what, that's the dilemma that everybody's in right now. It's, it was good while the the sun was shining and the haze are growing, and uh, you know now it's how, how do we still meet that demand? Right. Well, I mean, I feel you uh, can attest to both sides of the spectrum pretty well because you started off. You've rode for a lot of big companies over the over the years as well, and right now you're riding for one of those companies, uh, Standard as well. Which Rick used to hook me up back in the day, and they really are. I feel one of the best bike companies out there because. Uh, I'm biased because he hooked me up and for a long time, and I love him, and I'll always have a small place and a big place in my heart. But um, how do you feel that is riding for some of the bigger companies like uh, GT and DK and then riding for Standard? Do you feel it's a lot more like family as opposed to like a company? No, I've I've always felt quite comfortable at um, at big companies, and and I you know even looking at standards, standards the big company. I, they are I think absolutely. Rick is, you know, um, a premier bike builder, custom bike builder. His his extensive line of bikes is, you know, it, it it's solid. 
and it always has been, I think, you know, a lot of people, you know, in the, uh, in the late 90s and early 2000s always aspired to be riding a standard. You know, there, there was a definite, um, you know, kind of, uh, oh, what's the word, y- you know, I'm sorry about this. I, I've just had a brain fart. I can't think of the world, but it's like that. Uh, we can, we can pause aura, it if you have gas. That aura around standard, like this mythical brand, and and the bikes were so beautiful, and the right people rode for them. You know, you got your Joe Rich, your, you know, uh, I think Taj rode for standard. Robbie Morales, you know, like you got these these powerhouse riders that that rode for them, and it was just the team to be on, the bike to ride, you know, and, and look at Rick Moliterno. Rick Moliterno came from Haro back in the day. Oh, yeah. Uh, to building his own bike company. And, you know, I, I personally haven't felt a change in any of the sponsors over the year. I think if I'm honest, you know, throughout, throughout my years of riding BMX, you don't necessarily deal with the people in the offices. You deal with a team manager. Right. And a team uh, manager is usually somebody from the industry that you know. Right. So it's... He's it's, the go-between between yeah, you so, and the company. He deals know, with all that stuff. You already have that rapport or you're building a rapport with that team manager. And um, it just makes for a, a great relationship. So, you know, I had good relations at GT. I had great relations at... DK and you know Rick again Rick just um, he, he makes me bikes and I'm very thankful and we get to do custom paint colors and customized frames and you know pretty much anything I want from a bike and I'm, I, I couldn't be happier like they're great but if you ask me you know was I equally as happy on a GT or a DK yeah I loved all those bikes. I'm not a big destroyer of bikes, you know, and I think every bike that I've ridden has always been a great bike. And um, I'm just very grateful that I got to, uh, you know, to ride for those companies, to live out my dream of being a, a BMX pro and, you know, to, uh, you know, just to have fun on the daily. All right, if I could get get serious just for a second, when are we going to see the chest protector come back into play? The chest protector? Well, you know, I, I, I had massive aspirations of bringing it back this year to X Games. Um, I'd already uh, found a, a set of pro-design knee pads off eBay. Um, pair that with some UGP shin guards mm-hmm. uh, and UGP shorts. I got you there. And then, um, you know, I was just going to head to Walmart, get a couple of uh, white vests and, uh, you know, like kind of the, uh, you know, the, I, I, I don't know the, the correct term or, you know. <laughs> the shoulder uh, pads? Uh, no, uh, for the vest. For the vest. It's just a white vest. It, okay. It's something that, you know, when you rode for Jinko, it was kind of standard issue. Oh, I understand. Um, so with that paired with body armor uh, and the false face helmet, I felt that there was going to be, you know, a huge resurgence from me on the vert ramp. Um, and the had, dance floor ju- with that. Just, just had massive plans. And then all of a sudden, you know, the flu bites everybody in the backside. And, uh, you know, everything gets shut down. Um, you know, I've, I've been sat at home in body armor. And, uh, and your chest you know, protector. Uh, 
the the chest protector. I mean, it's called body armor in Europe, but a chest protector. Have I been sat at home um, in full gear, uh, ready to go? <laughs> yeah, you know, it, it, I, I've just been waiting for the call. You know, um, have I rode at Woodward alone in it? Yeah, absolutely. You know, I had to get used to it. I had to find my feet again. Was it difficult for certain tricks? Of course. It made candy bars very restrictive because, um, you know, just the dad bod was getting in the way. Um, but, you know, in all fairness, you know, I was definitely going to come out swinging this year in, in uh, the chest protector, but it wasn't to be. It wasn't to be. Well, maybe we'll, maybe someday uh, somebody will make a chest protector that can fit the dad bod a little bit more appropriately. Yeah, well, I've lost the dad bod. Oh, okay. Um, you know, 200, well, you'll find it 250 again. miles a week on a road bike will definitely lose any dad bod. So um, fair, fair enough. Well, you could always wear the chest protector on the road bike as well. It keeps you safe from, from road debris flying Think, up. Thinking about it for the gravel races, I mean, it, it's not aerodynamic, but boy, can you get some sponsorship placement on a chest protector. <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I would say so. Anywhere yeah. you can put a sticker is is uh, high, re- high real estate. Yeah, value. and you know, it's, uh, it's always bar-to-bar action when you're in the middle of the peloton and Ain't nobody going to mess with you if you've got a chest protector on. I mean, that right there in spandex and a chest protector means you're ready for action. That's business. I mean, borderline gladiators, I'm talking. <laughs> gladiator. So what would your gladiator name be? Would it be like Gemini or Razor or uh, <laughs> Shoots from the Hip? Um, <laughs> All right, we took uh, a drastic I, turn. I, I actually, the the you know, I I, I guess, you know, I, I read a couple names, um, you know, of uh, we we were looking at the World Championships of beer pong today, uh, at the in the in the dinner break, and there were some definite um, names on uh, on the list that were contenders. Um, I think. You know, in the middle of a pro peloton, dressed in spandex and uh, with a chest protector on. Full face. Uh, uh, Oh, yeah. I mean, if you have a full face on in a gravel race, you know, watch out. Um, I guess Blitzkrieg would be, uh, you know, a name that nobody would would mess with if that was on the back of the helmets. I'd drop out of the race immediately. Embroidered into the spandex shorts. You know, Blitzkrieg, you know, you you would definitely be coming in hot with uh, a serious agenda in mind. You'd at least be coming in lukewarm. Well, you know, uh, you're going to be the only person who's not going to succumb to injuries in the mass pileup and melee that would ensue when you jam on your front brake at 30 miles an hour. Fair enough. Well, speaking of uh, pa- past, uh, <laughs> I guess, uh, things we did for, for work back in the day, uh, what did you did do before BMX? Because I know we've had this conversation before. But So going back to the, the – let's get through the nuts and bolts of, of Jamie Beswick. Where did you start before you went on to be – uh, pro BMXer moving to the States and, and giving the pro BMXer thing a go? Um, well, I quit school at 15 because I was absolutely terrible at school and my exam results um, weren't anything to write home about. Um, so left school at 15, uh, got started to do an apprenticeship in uh, floor restoration and ceramic tiling and spent five years doing that. Then I 
I got made redundant. I then started doing shows for a show team in England called Team Extreme. That sounds extreme. Well, you know, I, did, I was wearing body armor and a full face, so I definitely fit in uh, right there. And uh, at the same time, I picked up some side work delivering chocolates for a major chocolate here in England. And I used to drive around uh, certain parts of England and Scotland delivering tons of chocolate, you know, out of a, uh, a big um, a big 18-wheel lorry, which is a uh, tractor-trailer, I guess, in America. And uh, then from there on, uh, I applied for a job in the aerospace industry working on uh, compression engine blades for commercial airlines. Lo and behold, I, I got it and um, worked that for six years until I, uh, I you know, handed my uh, resignation in and went to ride for GT Bikes. Very good. Well, for somebody that had a career in floor tiling, I'm noticing your floor is bare concrete. Anything you'd like to, to say there? Um, urban. Urban. It's, it's urban. You know, I think, you know, I have bare concrete in my house that's sealed. Um, you know, when you have two dogs, definitely comes in handy. Uh, there's always accidents. And, uh, it's easier know, to squeegee pee uh, than yeah, you mop know, it out of a carpet. I don't know. Like, I, you know, I love the look of concrete. You know, when you go to a concrete skate park, you know, all the imperfections, all the swirls, all the the twists and turns. I mean, it, it's definitely um, it, it's uh, it's a thing of beauty. So, yeah, I appreciate concrete. It gives it character for sure. Yeah, hundred percent. You know, I, I'm sure that it's a metaphor for life. <laughs> Very good. So once you moved to uh, to State College, which was roughly early 2000s, late 90s, I guess, if I'm not mistaken, uh, I, I think the first time I crossed paths with you was, I think I met you when I was a camper at Woodward in like 98 or 9 maybe. And uh, I think you taught me toothpicks, to be honest. But I remember when you were moving to State College or you had just moved, you had some pretty funny stories from uh, living in Milheim compared to England. So how was that drastic change moving to the middle of nowhere, Pennsylvania, like Amish country, compared to where you were accustomed to back home? Uh, well, I actually moved to Arensburg, which was... Much at different. One, at one time, well, it's supposed to be the state capital at one point. At one point. At one point, it was supposed to be ago. the state capital of Pennsylvania. Because it's uh, the exact center of Pennsylvania. Didn't know that. Uh, so there's a nugget of knowledge I picked up for today. Um, <laughs> you know, it, it was, it was a great place because it was very rural. It was very, um, it was a very simple town. Um, they had a gas station. They just had a small kind of diner and, you know, it was just, to me, it was like American life and I loved it. You know, I'd spent time in California and at that time I really didn't appreciate California. Um, you know, I always felt like I didn't want to be held to a schedule by traffic and Pennsylvania just hit the spot and more importantly, Woodward was the right fit. Uh, hence why I moved out there. But um, was it an adjustment? Yeah. Yeah, it absolutely was, you know. Um, I think in the 28 years that I'd been on that on this earth um, until I moved to Arensburg, you know, people in England on New Year's Eve at the stroke of midnight don't come out and fire off their guns. Uh, <laughs> kind of weird. 
but kind of cool. Um, definitely went out and maybe even thought about calling the cops because it just sounded like the uh, you know the gunfight at the OK Corral. Um, you realize the cops you would have called were probably the ones shooting, shooting the, the guns. guns. Yeah, potentially. Um, but it, you know, I just found that you know this this small town life was was awesome. You know, I met a lot of great people in that town. You know, they they were very friendly, courteous, and you know, just good down to earth people. They probably helped you focus a lot with why you moved here in the first place. There were really no distractions, you know. In California, I, I saw a lot of riders go out there, and it was, you know, at times in the heyday of BMX when sponsorship was just outrageous. There was a lot of keeping up with the Joneses and, you know, um, a lot of, uh, you know, uh, impulse buying and, and lavishness to it. But my life was pretty simple in uh, rural Pennsylvania. I uh, I definitely lived within my means and saw the long game rather than the, uh, you know, the here today, gone tomorrow approach. And, um, you know, that, that was good for me. So I spent three years in Arensburg and I was riding, you know, all the time because Woodward was five minutes away for me. And it was hugely beneficial for me, my riding career, and how I then proceeded to spend the next 17 years of my life. Dude, would you say having that, that mindset of the uh, not here today, gone tomorrow, like looking forward to the future, do you think that kind of helped you, um, I guess, to, to stay where you're at right now, where you're on the same, I guess, the 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 direction may have changed where you have other aspects, but... You were still able to compete. You're still able to ride, like you, because you played. You played that long game as opposed to playing the here today, gone tomorrow. Do you think that helped? Yeah, I do. You know, I has mean, that been your your mindset your whole life? I guess, uh, like thinking ahead. Yeah, you know, I think you, you, you know, you have to. Um, you know, everybody always comes out with the old, you know, saying like, "Oh, what's your five year plan? What's your ten year plan?" I didn't specifically ha make plans like that, but I could always see that, you know, BMX was going to be around for a long time. Freestyle BMX was going to be around for a long time. Um, was the same sponsorship, was the same, you know, uh, level of um, input from external sponsors and TV companies going to stay the same? I highly doubt it. You know, uh, there was always going to be changes made along the way. So I, I just, you know, set about, um, you know, looking ahead. And hence why, you know, I, I while I enjoyed, you know, all aspects of riding and, and the great things it brought to me in my life, you know, I wasn't going out buying Ferraris and, and this, that, and the other, um, you know. You were spending Did, most of your money on Star Wars toys. I spent most of my money on Star Wars toys and road bikes. Um, but, you know, it, it was just I, I always had a, um, a long-term view of starting a family. And, you know, just when that day came around, I, I wanted to be able to provide for my family. And I also, having spent 12 years, you know, working for, you know, companies um, that – 
at the time I had a fantastic time. I never wanted to really re-enter the workforce in that uh, in that way. You know, working for somebody else. I after after being uh, a self-employed person in in BMX, I, I always aspired to you know to do something on my own terms and to be my own boss and to you know just uh, give myself the opportunities to find something else I was passionate about and, and you know, go on the words of if it's, you know, if it's fun, you'll never work a day in your life. And I just set about finding things that, you know, when riding slowed down, that would still keep the fun in it for me and um, would allow me to, you know. Although you do work a day in your life, um, it's not, you know, a laborious work or a begrudging work. It's an it's a work you appreciate. Work. Yeah, I love it. Yeah, I I feel we are cut from the same cloth in that aspect for sure. Uh, one thing while we're on the topic of you moving to to the area and kind of where you got your roots, not roots, but where you started, you got your roots in the United States anyway. Is uh, you told me a story. This is years ago that you told the story, but it always made me laugh when you were talking about how. Uh, there was a raccoon or something that was terrorizing your trash can and you borrowed a shotgun from a neighbor and you were trying to take care of the, the raccoon or whatever it was. Do you remember this story that you told? Vaguely, yeah. It was to do with skunks. And, skunks. Um, you know, that year I think I went on a rampage and, and, and shot a grand total of 12 skunks. <laughs> um, but, I, I, you know, I started out with a twenty-two. Okay. Um, so it was almost like an air rifle. Um, and, it's a roided up BB gun. Yeah. And at night, while the wife is holding a flashlight on top of a trash can, while you're trying to aim at a skunk walking out the woods to destroy your uh, your property, a uh, little tough. Uh, not going to lie, little little tough. Um, so Ed Isabel, the owner of camp at the time, you know, uh, invited me over to his house. I told him my dilemma, and he introduced me to the world of shotguns. <laughs> and uh, the shotgun definitely, you know, it uh, it it enhanced my shooting game. It was almost, it, it was a piece of equipment that said, you can't miss. Right. Um, <laughs> great success throughout that summer. It was a, it was a summer of skunk. Um, but... Uh, you know, it was, uh, yeah, I mean, that's that's living in Arensburg. You know, I, I think one night I shot one skunk and my neighbor came out. And, uh, you know, he goes, what are you doing? I said, I'm shooting a skunk. He was like, where'd you get the gun? I was like, I got F at, at Isabel. He goes, huh, yeah, it's a nice gun. <laughs> and I was like... Right on, dude. He's like, yeah. And that was it. And that was it. That was it. <laughs> he just walked away, and he was the guy who also fixed my lawn tractor, and he was one of the you know, culprits for coming out on New Year's Eve and firing off a few rounds. So, I mean... That, that was just small town living. It's funny how certain certain parts of the country or the world even, that story is just kind of a no big deal story. But other parts is just the oh, funniest thing. <laughs> you know, I, th I think I think where I live in State College right now, I could not replicate those days. Never. At all. Uh, but, you know, um, you know, 17, 
18 years ago, it was different. You right. Know, it was a diff- different time in a, in a different town and, and with people that, you know, had always grown up that way um, and probably still uphold that tradition now, you know, and I, I, I tip my hat to them, you know, because, you know, small towns, especially rural towns, you know, that there aren't a lot of things going on and, um, you know, any, any way they can find excitement and pleasure, you know, kudos to them. You have a lot more freedom out there for sure. You do, you do. And you have a lot more land too. I think that was one of the most astonishing things that, you know, uh, living in Pennsylvania, you know, I I know I personally found just incredible because I'd come from a town in England where basically you lived on top of your neighbors and coming out to rural Pennsylvania, it was standard practice to own an acre of land. And I would look at it and I would go, this was nearly as, my house was nearly as big as the street that I lived on in England. Like, it was ridiculous, you know. And I had all this freedom to walk around my land. I had tons of green grass and, you know, it was it was cool. It was really cool. And I, I, I just built an appreciation for, for for having space and you know, I didn't have to live in a city to be next to the the best skate park in the entire world, which was Woodward Camp. That's right. Uh, which I mean, times they are changing for sure. But uh, why don't you bring us back back in time to where uh, where you first started moving here? Because I know back in that time, sessions were heavy. Sessions got heavy. Some of the some of the biggest names in the game back then were living at Woodward and training on the same ramp daily. And I'm saying there were serious sessions. Every single day, because I remember those sessions, and I always, I feel like an old man sometimes, because I always go in the way what, the way back machine, and I'm just like, man, those those sessions were crazy. Kids don't even realize how serious it got back then. Like on a daily basis, there were some of the biggest names in the sport. Yeah, you know, when I moved out in '99, and I found success at the X Games because of Woodward, uh, there was a huge influx of riders that that came to Woodward, uh, everybody wanted to move there. And, you know, you've got Kevin Robinson, Tom Stober, you've got Durs, Keggy, Spinner, McElhaney, uh, Jared Sooney moved out, the photographer, uh, Art D'Ambrosio, Danny Parks. You had all these, John Parker, you know, you had all these incredible riders. And, of course, not forgetting Steve McCann, you know, you, you had all these incredible riders moving out to Camp Woodward and on a daily basis you would walk into Cloud Nine and there would be a bunch of heavy hitters riding Resi and Mini Ramp and the Vert Ramp would just be going off. Uh, it was like walking into a Dutor X Games every day. You know, the stuff that was getting put down on the ramp, it was conducive to your level of riding moving at a very fast pace you had no choice you 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 walked through the door and and if you couldn't get inspired by the riders who are putting it down on the ramp you know you you i don't know like you you definitely weren't you were out of place if you were out of place yeah you you weren't ready to go to that level you know it was uh it was quite it was quite shocking but also you know it was it was great because I feel the level of vert riding in the early 2000s really skyrocketed because in part of, you know, Woodward Camp, 
uh, being home to, to all these great riders. And, uh, you know, also, you know, the, the Greenville vert scene was big too. So there was definitely, you know, a divide between the two of them, but it helped push you know one to help push the other so for sure there was actually even a, t- a small a short short time where Miro was contemplating moving up to Woodward because there are so many heavy hitters and he wanted to move up here yeah no you know I mean it yeah I rode with Dave a few times and he did you know say that he was thinking about moving up here but I kind of knew he wouldn't move I mean Greenville was what he knew what he loved you know, all his friends were there. There was a Jersey Mike's in, in Greenville. <laughs> there um, is a Jersey Mike's here in town now. Yeah, but that didn't come till many years later. And I, I think at that point, Dave was, you know, heavily invested in, in the Greenville scene. Uh, but, you know, it, it, would it have been great if Dave would have moved up? Yeah, it just would have been another insane rider uh, in the Woodward fold. But, um, you know, he, he loved Greenville. And uh, Greenville loved him, and he was just a huge component of the uh, the Woodward BMX scene. And you know, I think without Dave Mirror moving to Greenville, you know, back in the the nineties when he did, you know, that scene would have never really caught fire. Yeah, and it certainly did. And one thing that I I always appreciated you four with your riding kind of going back to all the heavy hitters just like you like we were talking about woodward was more or less a training like it was basically any do tour x games i guess practice sessions like you you were seeing all the top guys from there granted there are a few guys from greenville or, or elsewhere from around the world but woodward there was a heavy scene and one thing i always appreciated about was you as opposed to i mean some of the other guys did as well, but you rode a little bit of everything as opposed to just vert, where some of the vert riders, they would just kind of concentrate on vert. Now, they could ride other stuff. Obviously, everyone had their roots in, in uh, many other aspects of BMX, but you kind of – you rode and were able to hang with everybody. Like, you've even con- competed in, like, uh, what were those contests, the Backyard Series in England and some of the, the Park Series and stuff like that. And do you feel that helped you be able to ride a little bit of everything, bring that to vert, kind of give you maybe not style, but just just allow you to be able to be more fluid, I guess, as opposed to having a, a, a wider range of background as opposed to just concentrating on a vert? Yeah, I'd always grown up riding a bit of everything. Um, so every time we went to a skate park, you know, if they didn't have a, a half pipe, I would ride the quarter pipes. And obviously the obstacles that get in the way to the quarter pipes are also fun to ride too. And, you know, I did in the early days of, of the B3 contest, I entered park comps and they were great fun. And going back for the backyard jams were always a great time. And, you know, it, it, it does. It makes you a well-rounded rider. Uh, you can definitely learn on park and, and transfer it to vert and vice versa. And, uh, you know, just I, I had a fun time. It, you know, uh, initially I competed in park contests, uh, but then the more I, I got heavily involved in, in vert, I, you know, reduced the amount of contests I went in for park until it was zero. Um, but it didn't stop me from riding park because I found enjoyment in it. And I, I loved riding with great park riders, much 
like I did riding dirt with great dirt riders, you know, going to, you know, places like Minersville with TJ Lavin and, you know, Ty Stuyvesant and, and all the, you know, the big names, McCann as well. He was a phenomenal dirt rider and going there on a weekly basis to ride with Sean and, and his crew was, you know, it, it was just so much fun. I looked forward to it, you know, cause it just gave me a different outlet from vert and, you know, it just gave me a chance to just work on a part of my riding that I'd always dreamed about, you know, kind of being stylish in. I think, you know, anytime you go to the trails, you know, you always think like, you know, when you tweak the back end out and you turn the bars a little bit, you're like, oh, yeah, like, I know I look like Chase Hawk when I'm <laughs> I'm going over these doubles. And then when you kind of look back on video, you kind of look like a hawk with a broken wing and kind of limping, <laughs> limping across the floor. But anyway, it, it wasn't about that. It was just about the feeling of riding trails and just and doing something that made you feel good, regardless of how it looked. And that's what I got out of parking and, and trails. You know, I rode flatland in the in the humble beginnings of BMX and loved it. You know, can I ride flatland now? No, nah, not so much. Although, you know, me and Keith were doing cherry pickers the other week. But, you know, I loved it. I love all aspects of BMX. I still watch the flatland contests at Feast. And I, um, you know, I, I try and ride as much as I can of everything these days. And, and Park being one of them. Yeah. Well, I know even uh, just a couple of weeks ago we had the uh – um, the old school jam out at Woodward, and there was a flat contest. I was kind of, I was hoping that I'd see you out there, kind of throwing it down as well. But I didn't see any any Jamie sightings on the flat course. No, you know the over the bars jam at, at Woodward was really really cool. You know, I I think it, it was a silver lining for. Uh, you know, a certain generation of BMX riders at the end of this year, you know, to come out to ride together uh, under under the circumstances was just a great time. And ev- everybody had a great time there. It was um, a great turnout. Yeah, it was. It, it was really, really cool. You know, um, the first time we've run it, the first time we we brought in some, some great names from BMX past, you know, Mike Dominguez, Xavier Mendez, Dave Volker. Uh, Bill Nitschke, Gary Pollock, and you know Warren Marchese from the uh, you know from the Philly crew, the uh, the Dorkin and York era, and of course uh, Ray Schletvig, <laughs> I think that's how you pronounce his name, or Large Ray, Large should, Ray. should we say Large Ray? I think he's better known as. But you know, to have those guys there, it, it meant a lot. You know, it meant a lot not only to me but to to guys that never got to see those guys in the day mm-hmm. um but you know but coming to an event uh in the middle of a uh, at the back end of a pandemic um and, and finally meeting them for the first time was was a big deal you know e- even though only a few of them rode and you know they they weren't really the rider they were in in their prime you know it just gave them a chance to talk to them and I often feel that sometimes when riders are in their prime and they're at an event, they don't really have the time to give you to talk because they're pulled in a a million different directions. Um, but at this event, we had time to talk, sit down, chat. You know, um, Saturday night there was a barbecue and 
it was just uh it was a great opportunity to uh to be with these legendary riders from you know the uh the eighties and and uh the beginnings of the nineties and yeah i I definitely appreciated it that was fun now did you set that up or is, did Woodward set that up? Now I, I got in touch with Xavier and John Bulgins and just, uh, you know, got in touch with, you know, Volker and uh, just, you know, just asked them if they would come out and uh, support this event. And it's going to be an annual event that we do and it's going to get better every year. And, you know, we're always going to be looking to add to the event. Um, and, you know, I've, I think Flatland is one of those important additions. And going back to your point, now you didn't see me out there. Uh, unlike a modern-day Flatland rider, I need a front brake. Ah. I'm not incredibly good at Flatland. If I have a front brake, it makes things easier. Um, but I don't think anybody wants to see Jamie Bestwick do a track stand for the best part of three minutes, and that was pretty much my entire routine right there. I feel you are mistaken, sir. I would have loved to see every minute of that. Well, I was practicing a quick spin on a bike with a set of mags, but I couldn't. I I was having trouble pulling it off. Um, but you know what? Uh, there's time between now and the next over the bars jam at, at Woodward East, and I feel that uh, you know, come next year, big things are going to happen. We have a big wide floor. If we move this table to the side, you could be practicing all kinds of stuff in here. Yeah, you know, Terry Adams does it in something around the uh, the same size as this. So, you know, who knows? Who knows? Who knows? It's uh, all systems go for the 2021 OTB Jam. Well, all things considered with the pandemic and everything, I think it was uh, an amazingly fun event. So thank you for doing what you did uh, to get it going. Yeah, you know, um, Jan, uh, you know, from Woodward and Darren Hazel and uh, Chase Pauser, we all worked together on putting this event together and i think as a team we we did a fantastic job agreed was there anybody that uh you were looking forward to having out that wasn't able to i know obviously people were probably scared to come out because of the entire pandemic and and everything going on but it's a little late in the day too you know i think uh you know the the marketing behind it um you know came a couple weeks before it um because you know it wasn't until you know, after camp finished that, you know, they asked me to get involved and, and, and make some additional changes. But I was looking forward to Brian Blyther coming out. Um, it would have been great if we could have got Bob Harrow out too. And, you know, Mike Buff and R.L. Osborne. Um, you know, those are all guys that I grew up with personally and that I have incredible memories of and, and people that inspired me in, in the uh, in the early years of BMX. And it would have been great to have them out and to, you know, to to kind of uh, give everybody there that, that opportunity to, to talk and to, uh, you know, um, to be around the, the childhood heroes. And also, you know, for the new school kids, you know, to to just get some knowledge. You know, I feel like, you know, those early years of BMX from the the 70s to the end of the 80s and and maybe to the beginning of the 2000s, you know, the the new school kids really uh, don't know too much about it and have not really delved too much into the history of BMX. And I think the Over the Bars Jam is a great opportunity to, to understand the rich history of BMX 
uh, to meet the characters uh, who were around in uh, in that era, and uh, you know just um, just to enjoy you know all being in the same space together. Agreed. Well, you were you said something about uh, knowledge, and one thing I always kind of associated you in this. I don't know if you would feel the same, or if you would agree or disagree. Uh, but ever since, again, back in the day, hundred years ago, whenever it was that I moved to camp and started living there a little bit more full time, you always seemed like kind of one of those mentor kind of riders, where you kind of you knew your history, but you were still you were not scared to like share it with the younger group uh and all of us knuckleheads that were just kind of there as as the the workers at woodward just kind of living there year round full time for a while you always seem to be one of those guys that was just always down to help whether it's with knowledge or even just with clothes just just stuff that you had just from sponsors you would you'd bring in garbage bags full of clothes and stuff like that and just kind of hook us up and and i feel you were always that person that we would look up to even though, I mean, you're only a few years older than us, but it was just, you always seemed like you had this wealth of knowledge. And then you go on to be the um, team manager for the English, English team, the BMX team for the Olympics. Uh, does it feel like you've kind of done that on purpose? Or is that just kind of who you are, who, you, who your person is, I guess? No, I, I, I've always tried to help other people out. Um, you know, obviously, obviously throughout my career, you know, um, you know, helping helping people out uh, was very easy. Um, you know, I think any rider will tell you that there's, you know, when you reach a certain level, there's uh, a luxury of having a lot of things for free. I mean, nothing's ever for free. You're having to ride and you're having to, you know, produce, um, you know, certain uh, things that you've obligated yourself to. But, you know, I would have clothes and shoes, etc. show up at the house and, you know, you can only physically wear one pair of pants, one T-shirt at any given time. So I would always, you know, just bring that to camp or, you know, if it, if it wasn't something, you know, materialistic, if it was uh, uh, some some knowledge or to, to help with, with tricks or to help with advice, um, I, w- I would always offer it up. Because, you know, people have helped me in the past, and I've been very grateful for that. And it's almost like a pay-it-forward type thing. And, you know, if, if you can help somebody in the initial years of them finding enjoyment in, in the sport of BMX, who knows where it's going to lead them to? You know, I, I, I always felt like in the beginning of Daniel Durza's career, I... I I try to help him out as much as I physically could, uh, whether that be through advice or, or trying to hook him up with people, um, you know, and then look where Daniel goes. And the vast majority of it is all on Daniel, and I'm not saying I was a, an incredibly integral part in Daniel Durza's success, but, again, it was a, an opportunity to help someone who came from uh, a non-English-speaking country um who was struggling with the language barrier and and adapting to you know competing in the usa so i i I try to help him when i could and uh you know to 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 offer that to to the next generation of riders is i wouldn't say it's my duty um but i find enjoyment from it hence why you know when i was given the opportunity to be the 
you know, rider coach for British Cycling's Olympic team, you know, I jumped on it straight away because I've found great success in in the knowledge that people have shared with me, you know, over the years and and the knowledge I've acquired from competing and and watching people that have inspired me with their own performances. And I want to share that with those guys uh, because I want them to do well too. I want them to fulfill their goals and and their hopes and their dreams. I, I, I want everything to, you know, to happen for them. And if 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 I can be of assistance by by helping them with knowledge that I've learned over the years, it's it's a no brainer for me. Um, you know, when when somebody achieves their goal and you've played a small or big part in that, it's incredibly satisfying. Now, how is that um, working with just a team of such heavy hitters and getting your home country to the most prestigious contest ever? I mean, obviously, you've been a part and you've won a lot of X Games and do tours and do cups and things like that. Some of the biggest contests, but the Olympics, that's that's another level. That's a that's a the world platform. How is it just being able to help your country get to that to that point? Yeah, it's. It's great, um, but I'm always looking at the individuals rather than the country. Um, Fair enough, but you know, uh, you know, that we we all come from England, um, but it's it's the rider. It, it, it's it's about helping that rider achieve his goal. And if that guy, if 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 that guy or girl, their goal is to represent uh, Team Great Britain, then. You know, we'll achieve that goal. We'll, we'll do it through, you know, through hard work and uh, and through, you know, knowledge acquired. Um, but I think if you ask all the athletes that their goal is to, you know, is to go to the Olympics and to uh, not only ride the best they can, but walk away, you know, with a medal. And that's what we're trying to achieve, you know. And I'm doing it for each and every one of those guys. And... Uh, it's great, you know, when we go to contests and when I get to spend time with them, I'm constantly blown away by the level that these guys can ride at. And, you know, it's, it's, it's nice because, you know, um, a lot of these guys are on the cusp of something great. Like, they're, they're right there. They're knocking on the door. And... You know, when when that time comes, the the level of riding that these guys will will be at will just be insane because what they're doing already is just. I mean, I, when I've sat and watched them, I I sometimes have a hard time comprehending what I'm watching. I'm sure. I'm sure. Now with the team, as I as I mentioned, it's it's stacked. There's some pretty heavy hitters for sure. Were you involved with? picking the riders for the team or was that kind of established before you got involved i helped out with the team selection and um you know i I guess i'll backtrack a little bit because i said you know it's not about helping the country out it absolutely is you know it's uh to be a part of the british cycling team is an incredible honor so i guess i was a little um you know hasty in in saying that you know it's it's not about the country it absolutely is any any time that you know the the uk great britain can be on top of the podium is is a great day for 
for not only cycling but for for my you know for for me being in BMX and being a British athlete um but um you know working with these guys and 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 looking at who we had to uh, choose from at the time I mean there's some serious riders you know the the initial team uh was Jack Clark um, Declan Brooks, James Jones, Alex Colborn, Ben Wallace, Emma Finnegan, and uh, Charlotte Worthington. And, you know, cream of the crop riders. Uh, and I, I think the track record is, you know, speaks for itself. And, oh, we, we also have Mark Webb on the team. Just Amazing. insanity. Absolute insanity. And, uh, you know, uh, initially at the training camp, we actually brought Ryan Taylor out too. Really? Uh, Ryan Taylor at a time when Ryan Taylor was just off the charts. On fire. On fire. Um, so, you know, we, we really brought out the best of the best. And, and then I guess that selection and, and, and the team, you know, basically, um, you know, they, they, took it upon themselves to determine who was going to keep moving forward with the team, who was really, you know, uh, willing to, to kind of work hard and dedicate themselves to the team and to, to their own competitive results. And, uh, you know, here we are today, and we, we have four guys in James Jones, Deck Brooks, Alex Colburn and Ben Wallace, and uh, we have uh, Charlotte Worthington. So those have, have, have all, you know, kind of earned their spots in, in to going into this final year as we decide who's going to be the representatives for the United Kingdom. Now, I know you uh, kind of watch social media and stuff like that, and I know you have a hard out as well, so let yeah. us know if you need to, need to split or if we need to wrap this up early. But uh, I know you, you spend a lot... Not a lot of time. I'm not trying to say you spend a lot of time on your phone, but you do watch social media. Uh, is there anybody that you're watching that's maybe coming up now that you're really impressed with that you kind of wish you could add in there just to the mix? Or is it is it pretty much set in stone and you're pretty happy with where it is even still? No, I think the guys we've got now are incredible. Um, you, you know, just I, I will hand on heart say as of – as of right now and as of the first contest next year, you can't find four better park riders to, to get the job done than the guys we have now. And even Charlotte, you know, being the, the female. Uh, looking ahead to potentially Paris 2024, you know, you, you've got guys coming through right now that are legit. Right. You know, Kieran Riley, Dylan Hesse. You know, these two young riders in England are, are definitely going to be a force to be reckoned with over the, the next few years. And they themselves are going to make a push for, you know, Olympic selection. Um, well, I'm hopeful they are. Um, and uh, it would be great to think that at that time I would have the opportunity to work with those guys and uh, to help them in their careers and, you know, achieve their goals if their goal is to go to the Olympics. I mean, who knows? You know, when Ryan Taylor was on the British team, you know, he uh, he called me up and, um, you know, said that at this time he wanted to concentrate all his efforts on uh, his brand and uh, where he wanted to specifically go. And that wasn't 
you know, to dedicate all his time to becoming an Olympic athlete in competition. And I've always appreciated him for that phone conversation he had because he was very, very honest and open. And, you know, that, uh, that meant a lot to me. And uh, I respect him for that. And look where he is now. I mean, he's doing great things, you know, in the world of social media and with his own brand, uh, I think, Certi it's called. And uh, he, he's doing awesome. So, you know, I think in the next few years, we're going to see a lot more British talent um, and they're all going to be vying for a spot, uh, whether that be at, uh, at a big feast event or an Olympic event. You know, we will, we will see. It's up to those guys to determine, you know, where they want their career to go. And, you know, if I'm, I'm a part of uh, helping and guiding them to, to their success, then... That's going to be great. Yeah, it should and it should have happened in August, if I'm not mistaken. So it should be well over with. But then, because of the whole COVID uh, pandemic, it got pushed back a year exactly. So next August, I, I guess, is when the next when it's supposed to happen again. Yeah, or not, or not again, but supposed to actually happen, I suppose. Um, Hopefully, is there anything that you guys do? I know I know a lot of the guys come over here to Woodward to ride with you and train with you. Do you guys have trips scheduled or do you go back home to, to England to ride with or hang out with them and ride with them? And not at the minute. Well, not at the minute. No, you know, we can't, we can't leave, um, you know, because of, uh, the, the regulations in place, um, with international travel. But, you know, when, when things do ease up, of course, I'll be on the first plane, I'll be going back home, or they'll be on the first plane and they're coming out to the States. But, you know, we, I, I'm in touch with the guys every day. And uh, we're always, you know, kind of figuring out uh, the direction we need to go in and, uh, you know, what we're going to be working on next. And that's exciting. Um, have we had camps in the past? Yeah, it's been great. It's been great to work with all the guys. I, I brought them out here to Pennsylvania and to Woodward Camp. And we've uh, we've traveled to all the contests together, and it, it's you know it, I I've really enjoyed my time with them, and I hope that continues over over the next years. Um, but yeah, I'm just looking forward to when we we really can start traveling international again, and and really start making a push at the big events. Very cool. So I know I know you do have to to wrap it up here in the next few minutes. I have a I have a Zoom call, but. Um, we, you know, we. Uh, I think it's only going to last for ten minutes, so we can continue after that. All right. Well, sounds good. Well, maybe we'll pause it and come back after that if we can. All right. Um, I will say that the Robin Adams uh, or Robin Robinson podcast is way better than mine <laughs> to this point. She's got a way better voice. It's it's very uh, it's it's soothing on the ears. <laughs> I will let her know to make sure to listen to this one to get all right, Robin. <laughs> <laughs> and we're back. That was a lovely commercial uh, brought to you by our one of our many wonderful sponsors. But thank you, <laughs> thank you. Uh, well, Jamie, thank you very much again for doing this. But uh, on that little intermission that we had, I did have something that I kind of. Uh, was racking my brain on something I wanted to talk to you about that I've been meaning to talk to you about forever, but it never came up organically. And I always thought it was kind of funny how it happened. And then I know you had a podcast somewhat recently, and you mentioned something that kind of 
revived the the thought process in my mind. So I wanted to bring it up to you uh, real quick. Is I don't know if you even remember this, but I think it was like 2004, maybe five. I tore my ACL uh, at Woodward, like on um, it was on the box in lot eight. But anyway. After, once I found out it was officially torn and stuff, and I was like, oh, I'm getting surgery and this and that, you you made a comment. Granted, you were joking at the time, but anyway, the comment was, well, now that your, your leg's already messed up, you should start sending it. Just throw some flip whips over the spine and just this, that, and the other, and just try something crazy since you're already messed up. And I know you kind of said it as a joke, but then uh, after knowing you a little bit more, how you actually ride with injuries or maybe just kind of powered through some injuries. I mean, obviously your recovery and thing, your recovery process is different than some people. I always kind of, once I started to kind of know you a little bit better, get to know you to the point, I'm like, well, maybe he wasn't joking when you said that. I was like, they always just seemed funny to me because I thought you were joking because for some reason that stuck with me, even though I tore my ACL. You're like, yeah, get out there and send it. Now's the perfect time. Get out there and send it. And I'm like, well, maybe he wasn't joking after all these years. And I kind of think back to it. And I've always wanted to bring it up to you just ha- I just for no reason other than I just thought it was kind of funny how it happened. And my mindset changed from maybe he was joking. Maybe he was serious. I mean, you're, you have – I know you, this is kind of a question you've kind of gone through with other podcasts and interviews and things like that. But – how has your mindset kind of go through? You're, you're just so focused on the riding and getting to the next level as opposed to worrying about pain. And that's one thing I've always loved about biking and, and riding in general is no matter where I hurt, for the most part, as soon as I get on my bike, it seems like it kind of goes away. Do you feel the same? Is that kind of where your head's at or are you just kind of your, – your focus is in a different direction? Um, well, I always had a different agenda than most people you know my main goal was you know to to be the best at uh at at what i chose to do and uh, i was really passionate about seeing that goal through and and really you know once i'd kind of established myself as as this x games gold medalist you know i i really didn't want to give up that kind of uh you know, that kind of uh, title and, and that kind of stature that I built within my riding. So, you know, whenever I was hurt in the environment that I was in at the time, and we, I'll refer back to, you know, when all the heavy hitters uh, in in the contest scene all lived at camp, you know, if you were hurt, you couldn't sit out for long because, you know, people were progressing at a fast rate. So I did often ride through a lot of things that were, um, you know, at the time I should have sat out and really given it the time it needed to, uh, to rest and, and to heal properly. But, um, I, you know, I, I had to keep riding and, uh, I, yeah, ultimately, you know, years down the line, I paid the price, um, you know, uh, but it was just something that I was willing personally to do, um, you know, in reference to, to telling you to go send it, you know, uh, I think I was joking. Uh, I'm know, sure you were. I just, I, I just, you know, I, I very rarely tell people to just, you know, neglect injuries and, <laughs> and, and just, uh, you know, well, you know, your legs facing backwards right now. So 
may as well just send another. It's like now, like I, I having having worked through injuries and knowing um, how debilitating they are, I don't encourage other people to adopt, you know, that way of life. Um, but um, yeah, I did. Uh, it was something I was willing to to do. Uh, I was willing to, you know, sacrifice. You know, <clears throat> things that things that would come into my life <clears throat> in later years. <coughs> sorry, um, sorry. Well, it's I, I, I guess you know that was that was where I was at then, and that stayed with me for many years. Like I just I couldn't stop. It was almost like I was in this relentless pursuit of uh, of staying on top um, until ultimately. You know, the thing I was fighting the hardest uh, beat me. Got you. Well, I, again, I didn't. I wasn't trying to get too serious there. I just kind of. I thought it was kind of a funny thing that happened um, back in the day. But uh, because you were on top, one thing that I kind of wanted to ask you about as well. And again, I've I've known you for a long time. Uh, we used to film and take pictures back in the day. Uh, and I always know your your bag of tricks was so broad that there was quite it was, it went deeper than I ever saw in real life. Like there were a, you had a you had a bag of tricks that you that I always saw you working on the ramp, whether it was foam or resi, but you never brought to the real thing. Is there any reason or what kind? I guess what kind of we'll start off with what kind of tricks? Um, what are some of the tricks that you worked on or had in your bag of tricks that you never brought to the contest? Well, I think, um, you know, uh, I think if you look back in your video archive, you'll see <laughs> the only time I ever pulled a 540 decade. Right. Um, that was exactly what I was thinking of. And, uh, you know, there, there were many tricks like that, you know, power mower 540s, you know, basically a frame stand turned down 540, um, you know, kind of... Uh, no foot can can slash Superman fives like all, all those like ridiculous tricks. Um, you know, uh, I, I just wanted to learn everything. Right, I mean, that's that's freestyle, right? You you just go out, you try everything, and and the more I kept trying, the more I was like, wow, like this just opened up another door. Let's keep going. You know, see how far the rabbit hole really goes, and. You know, um, where a lot of them, uh, you know, um, at the point where I could integrate them into a contest run, not really. They were kind of, uh, you know, if we'd had a best trick component uh, to vert, absolutely. Um, that would have been the time to pull them out. But, you know, the way contest runs were and the way, you know, guys like Dave Mirror and Robinson and the like all... Uh, forced you to ride uh, they they weren't really allowing any mistakes you had to hit the tricks you had to keep the height and you had to keep it going for a minute uh, and uh, you know sometimes when you have that kind of like holy grail trick or that one at the end of the run that's a bit of a Hail Mary you know obviously you have to have the right air going into it and you know, at that point, one dead air, even though you were going into something that potentially has never been done before, 
or had never been done before, you know, um, would basically make or break the, the contest outcome for you. Fair you enough. Know? So it, but, you know, I, I, for many years, I never really, you know, learned these tricks with a view of this is going to win me the contest. Like I'm going to, you know, just go out there and crush it. Like, of course, I wanted to win every contest, but I had a run that, you know, I could implement certain things into that run that would give me the best opportunity to win the contest. But also those tricks were conducive to me never losing height and momentum on the ramp. So, you know, yeah, I mean, I, I, I tried some wild stuff. There were some wild some things. really wild stuff over the years. And, uh, you know, I'm glad I got to pull it on, on Resi. I never, you know, I, I, I was never kind of uh, the guy just to throw it, you know, willy-nilly on the, on the vert ramp, you know, because, um, you know, there was another part of me too that while I'm trying all this wild stuff, I actually wanted to get up the next day and, and have another wild session. Right. Because I never wanted to miss out on riding, hence why in the first question about riding injured you know another part of that was i never wanted to miss a session like why would i they were insane like the riding was off the charts so you know missing a session was was um was you know was was a bad idea and uh sometimes you know and i i'd ridden with guys like parker and kagi and they missed quite a few sessions because um you know they were they were all about you know sending, sending it. it and uh sometimes yeah, they may have sent it that bit too far, and uh, you know, it sent them straight to the couch. Right. Well, one one reason that I asked that as well because again, it kind of stayed with me. Uh, again, it was all in jest, kind of joking, and in a in a in a fun, positive manner. But I remember, I can't remember exactly who all was around, but I know it was yourself, Stevie McCann, myself. And then I, I'm sure there were a few more. And then I think Steve even brought it up like, oh, when are we going to see this, that or the other? And I remember you again, joking, of course, but there was a little hint of seriousness like, why don't you make me at the next contest or something? It was something along those lines. Well, if you if you get me to that point where I feel I need to, I will definitely break it out. And then but it was just one of those things where you could see his mind like crap yeah he got me <laughs> it was just like he he was he you he was kind of joking with you and he and then you just kind of stuck the knife a little bit more <laughs> just kind of uh, thing and which was kind of how we all were back then it's yeah. kind of it's kind of how it is it's not yeah. obviously to be mean or spiteful it's just all we're all joking and being silly and sometimes you gotta you got give it to the other guy a little bit just to kind of keep them on their toes it was banter it was know, banter, exactly. It was, there was always banter on top of the ramp, you know, especially between me and Stevie. But, you know, um, that, that statement was true. You know, it was, uh, you know, Stevie asked me, asked me for years, like, why aren't you doing 900s? Well, um, we were at a small contest in England. We'd gone over there with Mongoose and GT. And uh, it, it was a jam format contest, nothing crazy. And Stevie... For some reason, I took his helmet off, and he was sat down with his legs dangling in the ramp right next to me. And um, he just went, why don't you do a 900? And I just looked at him. I went, okay. And I rolled in, did a turn-down flare, did one air, and pulled a 900 and popped out. And he was like, I didn't mean it. I was like, 
I did. I was like, I, you know, like, thanks for reminding me. Like, right. You know, it's just one of those times where, you know, the situation presented itself, uh, uh, you know, and it gave me the opportunity to just go out and send it. Um, but, you know, Stevie, Stevie was always an interesting character because, you know, I kind of, I, I love that kid like a brother. And, uh, you know, I, uh, when he started to ride there, I, I, I saw, you know, kind of the, the, the fire know, in his eyes. The, well, not the fire in his eyes, but an opportunity to, you know, have that next big vert rider there. Mm-hmm. And he would be the one that, you know, like you always want to segue into the next great guy taking over. And I felt like he was the one. And, um, you know, we, we had a lot of great years together and, and he definitely pushed me over the years and it was great to see him win. Um, and, uh, you know, um, and it was great to see him take what he'd learned from Ver over to the mega ramp and achieve great success over there. So, you know, there was, there was always some, some banter between the Australian and, and the Englishman on top of the ramp, but, uh, it was never, you know, anything more than just like, you know, just kind of bit of ego, bit of comedy, busting balls, and uh, busting balls, yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, another one again. This and this one was kind of a call-in because I happened to talk to Daniel Dares a little earlier, and I said I mentioned I would be doing a podcast with you, and he said, "Hey, ask him about Jamie time." And I'm not sure if it was known to you or not known to you, but whenever we would set up a session. Whenever we knew that you were in the in the in the mix of the text message uh, chain or whatever, it was like save the sessions an hour early because you'll get there about an hour late. So if we <laughs> want it to start at one, tell say it starts at twelve because Jamie will show up around one. And he said, knowing that you just get lost in this vortex or whatever, how was it that you ever made it to a finals on time? Um. That's a great question. Uh, that's that's a really great question. Um, there were a couple of times where I rolled in late. Um, I can remember one time in Chicago, um, I, I got a gig working for NBC uh, as a on-air analyst. Um, and uh, I... It, it was the year where the torrential rains came to Chicago and pushed everything back. Well... The torrential rains were coming later that night, so they brought the vert contest forward while we were still uh, commentating on dirt. So I'm actually, uh, if you ever see that rebroadcast, at the end where they're, where they're talking about the, the, the dirt contest and the winners and who did what, I'm actually getting padded up on TV uh, because, I, because the finals had already started. So the first guy's gone in and, you know, whoever it was, was riding. And when I, when I showed up, um, there were five guys in, into the contest. And I've not even taken a single run on this ramp. Really? And, uh, not even a practice run or anything? Not even a practice. I missed all the practice because BMX Dirt was going on. And, you know, I, I just had to take mini runs in between each rider and i felt terrible like because you know you don't want to be that guy that's going in and and having to try tricks in between people's runs and um you know because they're trying to get themselves in 
the mood to go in and throw down. And then you've got me riding in and doing flares and, and doing fives and stuff like that. And then right, you know, as the announcer cuts back in to start, you know, with the next rider that's going to go in, I zip out. So I, I had to do that about 10 times just to get a good feel for the ramp. As it turns out, I have one of the best rides of my life that day. Like, everything just clicked. I mean, I, I probably hit one of the biggest fives I've ever done. Um, you know, just really ripped this run out of nowhere. And it was quite shocking, really. And uh, I'm, I'm sure, you know, uh, for me, it was both shocking and amazing. Um, but I could see, you know, frustration in others that wasn't there potentially 30 minutes ago. <laughs> <laughs> uh, because, you know, um, yeah, when, when, uh, when the, the guy who happened to qualify in first hasn't taken a practice run um, in the hour and 30 minutes that you've been there already and then suddenly just knocks it out the park first run, um, you know, uh, frustrating, but it was just that, that run was just a testament to all the riding I did behind the scenes. Like I, 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 I ride so much before turning up at an event that literally, you know, you know, that there was a potential for me to miss practice and roll up at the last minute and pull that kind of a stunt muscle you know? memory. Um, just, ingrained into me right. everything was automatic you know um but no you know it was uh jamie time was 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 definitely um a real thing um most of the time in jamie time i was eating lunch or i was taking <laughs> a power nap um so <laughs> uh yeah kind of uh you know there, there's been a lot of recipients to jamie time um <laughs> You know, and, and still do. But Jamie Time has been condensed now into, like, um, sometimes five minutes. But I, I'm on time generally. Um, but, you know, with riding, it's like, you know, it's, hey, you know, I mean, we all ride bikes. And we all have that luxury to ride bikes whenever we want. And I felt I, I definitely abused that luxury of, <laughs> of saying, hey, the session's at 1230. Yeah, but those guys will just be getting warmed up. And when I roll in at one thirty, bam, session's on. Um, but little did I know, behind the scenes, everybody had already accommodated for the fact that I would be an hour late. And, uh, you know, when, but, you know, when you when you walk into a session and everybody's like, yep, we'll be there at 12.30, and you walk in at one thirty, and those same guys that are stipulating the time are getting a massage at the side of the ramp by Trish and Bare Essentials Sports Medicine, like, come on. Like, <laughs> come on. Don't give me that crap. Like, what's this? Daniel Durs and Antony Napolitan time. Like, you're getting, a, you're getting a rub down at the side of the ramp because oh, I got a pinch in my shoulder. Or, Trish, I think the bum on my back's out. I roll in at 1.30. I'm already 40 minutes deep into a practice session on, uh, on the park. And then I'm heading up onto the vert when they're getting off the slab. 
So yeah, right. I, <laughs> I know how it is, does. So you know, I'll give it. I, uh, Jamie time is a real thing, but there there is also uh, a Daniel does time. Agreed. Agreed. Fair enough. Well, all right. Here's here's one riders riders question. I want to know what's the highest air you've ever done. Ooh, um, well, and I um, guess I guess this this counts as for how high the ramp was and how high the air was. Right, how tall the ramp was. Uh, on a regular, well, on an eleven and a half foot ramp, I went fifteen. Uh, was that straight like a vert ramp, or you were able to pedal ramp. into it? It was or just a, it was just a vert ramp, just vert a regular ramp. vert ramp. You know, four. Uh, uh, one, two, three, probably three good pumpers, and then the fourth being the tabletop, I managed to hit 15. Wow. Uh, at a do tour in Salt Lake City. Mm, I remember this picture. No. Yeah, you saw that was the day after. Ah. And that one was a whopper. That was a whopper. Now. Home of the whopper? Not the home, like of the, the home of the Whopper. Well, it's sponsored by Wendy's, so oh, all right, yeah. they, they don't have the Whopper. Um, that that was that was a big air, and Mark Losey took the picture. Um, g- great, great pick. I went higher than that the day before. Is that right? Um, what happened with the Losey picture was I screwed the air up before it, so I didn't get all everything you could, everything I could out of that air. So I kind of sc- screwed it up. But I still did the invert, which was a monster of an invert. Um, but I definitely went higher uh, before that. And then there was a time in Florida, and John Pover was on the deck, and he swears that I hit 16 feet on a tabletop out of that uh, Dutor ramp. But is that just by eye, or was, did he have something to actually no, level you to? Well, you know, the, the thing with the Dutor ramp was there was always metal scaffolding. Right. And if you took the average, you know, the average cameraman or average vert rider being six feet, and a lot of the guys were, you know, like Kevin and right. maybe not, you know, a couple of the other guys. Um, but, you know, if you looked at, at the height of the, the, the metal rigging on those on those ramps, like, you know, you easily had a 12 or 13 foot bar to go off. Right. Um, and there was a few times I... Went way higher than that bar. Wow! Um, but you know, and how tall was that ramp? Was that a, thirteen that was and 13. a half? Okay. Gosh, yeah. that ramp! But the beauty of those ramps was they were a, they were at least a hundred feet wide. They were monsters. They, they were, were huge, absolute monsters of ramps. So, you know, when you do a double A gate start and ride as fast as you can into a vert ramp of that size and you you ride in so hard that when you dive in the speed of going in pushes you out onto the last panel of skate light on the furthest side you know you're booking it for sure and uh i would then you know always hit one air on that side alley-oop across hit one more air with a slight carve in it and then square the bike straight up and aim for Aim for a, a piece of skate light and then just go straight up and down. Give it everything you could. Just give it everything you could, yeah. And I always found enjoyment in that. Um, uh, I, I will say I, I did try that in, in, in Germany one time. 
and th this is when I was younger. I think this was about 96. And I had uh, drank uh, a uh, energy drink. Uh, and I drank many of them for some strange reason. I don't know. Maybe I just got hooked on the taste at the time. I'd never had an energy drink before. We didn't have them in England. But we went to this contest in Germany, and I ha had this energy drink that they had there. And I, I pounded quite a few cans. And I was so hyped up that when we got to the highest airport of the contest, um, uh I, I mispumped the ramp going for a high air, and I went 14 feet up and about 10 feet out. And I, I, when I say out, I mean out, out towards, the flat towards the flat bottom. So you pulled out. And I landed on the floor. I twisted a set of steel uh, profile axle. Like I, I twisted the profile axle that was in the bike. Um Bent the axles in my bike, uh, blew both my ankles out, blew my wrists out, broke my thumb knuckle in half. The knuckle spun around and severed the tendon that went to my knuckle. And I was, it was a mess. I was an absolute was. mess. I mean, it, it, you know, and then I, I had to go back to England and ended up having surgery on my thumb. But yeah, just uh, I'm thankful that, you know, those times where I did square it up and go as high as I could, you know, I, I was definitely used to, to that level of speed. I wasn't as as, as hyped up, um, you know, and uh, it, it just goes to show you, you know, when, when you're hitting obstacles at, at going that fast, um, that they, the, the margin of error, you know, has to be none. Um, because with all that velocity going into a vertical pitch, you know, one wrong move and, you know, you might be going 16 feet out, but you also, you know, might be going 10 feet the other way, which is, which is a bad thing. Which is what happened to Jake Brown during that, uh, it did. Yeah. that mega ramp. It did. You know, uh, when, I, when I saw that, I definitely had flashbacks of the time I did it. And, you know, but crazy thing about Jake's whole incident um, was, you know, uh, I saw the whole incident happen. I saw Jake fly out, and I, I was just fearing the worst. It, it was just, I mean, what what an image. And uh, on what, uh, you know, what, what the world got to see was just, actually, no. Oh, I totally forgot. It was another crash that I saw Jake have. Okay, this is a winner, right? I just <laughs> remembered this. I'm sorry. I, I, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm getting old, and um, you know, these things do happen. No, but we love stories. I saw Jake's crash on a Delta flight flying to the X Games, and it, it was on the TV monitors. The, the, they had a live feed of, really? uh, of the X Games, and I was on the plane in the middle row, and I'm watching Jake, and it, Jake's riding in, and the next minute, the, the whole Jake episode happened where he got bucked out the ramp. And the minute he got flung out on a packed Delta flight, I screamed the F word, like <laughs> loud. Because you do. Of you course, know? because you know because, exactly what he's going because through. Because if I was there, I'd be screaming the same thing. Like, it was sheer panic. And it was the fact that, like, 
I'm 36,000 feet in the air. I'm watching this guy that I know, and he's heading for, you know, uh, for, for something bad. Something real bad. Certain doom. Certain doom. And um, I just screamed out the F word on this plane, like loud. And everybody looks around me. The people next to me are startled. And I'm just pointing to the screen. I'm like, oh, my God. Jake just crashed. <laughs> and, and it totally freaked me out. So anyway, um, I, I, I get to the X Games. And, uh, of course, you know, the whole buzz is about Jake and how Jake's doing and, and yada, yada, yada. And the next day I, I go down to um, I go to the X Games and I, I think it's uh, BMX Mega Ramp. So I'm watching BMX Mega Ramp and um, I can't remember who gets her. It's it's either Keggy or Kevin. You know, they were the usual candidates for sending it and, and ended up, you know, uh, getting a medical check. And anyway, I, I, I walked down to the medical thing. I, I, I saw if they were all right. And uh, as I'm walking out, um, Jake Brown is stood at the entrance of the loading dock where you, you walk through and go to the mega ramp. And I was like, hey, Jake, how you doing? Are you okay? Like, oh, my gosh, what a crash. Like, I was on a plane last night, and I screamed out and blah, blah, blah. And I goes, are, are you okay? And he was like, yeah, yeah, fine. And he's got cigarette in hand, <laughs> smoking away. And I, I'm just thinking to myself, how on, earth did, how on earth did you do that? Like, how did you get away from the gnarliest crash on earth? Easily. And, and you're, here you are, smoking a cigarette like nothing's happened. And that's just, that, that's just Jake Brown. Right. It, I, you know, I mean... I, I'm, I don't know the whole backstory behind the Jake Brown uh, incident. Um, I will say that uh, many of, ex, of the extreme athletes who went to the X Games uh, did partake in going to the after-hours parties of the X Games till, um, you know, uh, till the early hours of the morning. Uh, so I would say... Those were some pretty fun parties. They were some really fun parties. They're, they're, they're definitely... Um, Never be replicated. Easily. Thank I remember tackling Anthony into a pool with all his clothes and everything on after he pulled the double front flip. Yep. No hander. Yeah. Uh, there, there was a lot of wild nights. Well, actually, it was X just Games. a double front, I believe. Yeah. But, um, you know, who, who knows what, what state of mind and, and where Jake was on that crash. But, you know, to, to see him stood at the, lo at the edge of the loading dock smoking a cigarette the night after he nearly just could have killed himself was Quite astonishing. I'm sure. I mean, I was in the building when it happened, and it was – we were – I was in the building, but one of uh, – like, we were there helping uh, Nate Wessel build the build the parks. We didn't do the, the uh, mega ramp, but we did the street parks and the and the, the ramps. Yeah. I'm trying to think if that was 13 or 14. I, I want to say that was Can you 14. remember Mega Park? Yeah, that when was the, when the the yeah. whole conversation about building this mega park, and it was the year that they that they took Vert away, and then you know the skateboarders came in and, and got Vert back, but there was all this talk about building gigantic p 
park ramps, like 10-foot boxes and, you know, 15-foot uh, quarter pipes and the like. And then when everybody got there, there was like a five-foot spine and uh, <laughs> there was like a capsule and like, you know, four-foot bowl corners and stuff like that. And it was an insanely fun park, but it oh, definitely wasn't a mega park. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I rode that contest. Probably the worst park performance of my entire career, I will, I will say that. Um, I did beat Mike Spinner, though. <laughs> That Big w- shout out to Mike Spinner. Shout out Mike Spinner. Um, that was uh, the one. That was my my. I almost felt the. I was almost in X Games. That's my one claim to almost fame. Where uh, I'm trying to think. Alan Cook and Josh Harrington were were both hurt. So Josh got hurt uh, in at the street contest the night before, and Alan just wasn't into the contest, if I'm not mistaken. He's like, I'm not riding this thing. And Josh was like, he had a, a hurt arm or a broken arm or something like that, and there was only the one alternate there. So there was room for two alternates. So they both went to the judges and tried to – because I was – I would I mean, anybody that was on those build courses or build projects know, like, as soon as – as soon as – Work is done for the day. We're riding anything that's rideable. Mm-hmm. So I was right, and I rode those courses pretty much from the second it was rideable up until like ten minutes before the the actual contest, where they had to literally peel me off the course yeah. because I'm just like trying to milk that that course for everything it's worth. Sure. So I'm riding it and showing a lot of the guys the lines and stuff, and and Josh and Alan are about, hey, I'm, we're gonna go talk and see if we can get you in this thing, and I'm like. That would be like a dream come true type status for me. And they went and talked, and I guess the powers that be were like, well, it's not fair to all the people that competed all year to get to this point. And I was like, fair enough. I get it. Uh, I don't want any money. I just want to be able to, like, say I was in it officially. And they're like, we can't do it. And I was like, dang it. But it was like for probably 45 minutes, I thought I was going to be in the X Games. And it was just like that glimmer of hope. And it – it was all ripped away. From, no, so just close. Kidding. So close, but so, yeah, close. so far. But uh, yeah, during the, the Jake Brown contest, uh, we were watching the, the contest, but a bunch of the guys from the crew were in the bar, uh, just in the Staples Center, right on the other side of the hallway from. And as soon as the Jake Brown thing happened, everyone from the bar cleared out, bartenders and everything. And my buddies are just sitting there watching the contest. Everyone And they watched everyone run out because they, they wanted to run across the hallway to see it in real life, see like... I, that's just if the way. Okay. That's just the way people are. Yeah. As, soon, as soon as they're like, that guy might be dead. Let's go see him. So, <laughs> but so they ran out of the building and, or across the hallway, out of the room, out of the bar, and some of my buddies just looked at each other and they both just grabbed a, a full bottle from behind the counter and walked back, right. walked out to their hotel room. But uh, yeah, that's a pretty wild experience. And speaking of which, I wanted to ask you: Is there any reason? that you've never really ridden or wanted to ride or haven't competed in, like, a mega ramp contest? Um, I... Now. I always felt that the mega ramp was never conducive to my style of riding. Okay. Um, I, I always felt that flare down widths would never work on it. Um, and, you know, when I saw guys like Kevin, you know, Chad... Uh, Stevie, Morgan Wade, you know, they were all riders that really wanted to send it. Um, I think I was a bit more calculated than that. And again, I I never wanted to miss the session. So I was always thinking ahead about riding and, and always being on my bike. And I saw that, 
you know, the, the MAGA ramp uh, was a, um, it, it was a pretty intense way of riding your bike. That's a man's ramp. Yeah, yeah. No, you know, it's no joke. You crash on that thing and um, it's definitely a career ender. Uh, I think, you know, that's been proven. And, um, you know, I had uh, a great time watching guys I knew and, and friends ride in the mega ramp and achieving the most incredible things and uh, pushing the, the boundaries of what can be done on a ramp of, of that magnitude. Um, but I also saw the downside to that, and that's what I didn't care for. Like, I, I really, you know, uh, didn't care for seeing these guys get so torn up by that ramp that it, I mean, like I said, it ended some guys' careers. Yeah, for sure. You know? I mean, the the vert, the vert ramp is pretty, pretty the vert, serious. The vert, ramp, the vert well. ramp is very unforgiving. The mega ramp will basically end your career on right. a bike. If, if, you know, like anything, anything can end your career on a bike, you know. Um, but, you know, that mega ramp, you you can't mess around. Right. Uh, especially, you know, I, I'm not saying people don't go as high anymore or do things as gnarly anymore. They do. You know, the things that James Foster and uh, Morgan and, you know, even that kid R. Willie is doing on the mega ramp. Um no joke. However, you know, when, when Kevin and Chad are trick, are doing flares, like no-handed flares and flare whips at 20 feet, that, I mean, that's some serious, that's some serious stuff right there. And, uh, you know, Kevin started doing alley fives and opposite flares and, and trying double flares, and then you've got everybody doing triple whips, and you know, um, and you could see where it was going because everything, you know, had to be, you know, bigger and better. Right. And then you've got a young guy like Vince coming in and doing five double whips on on a mega ramp, and you know, <laughs> you have to compete against that for sure. You have to go bigger. You have to get crazier in your tricks and you know um i just uh i didn't ever see myself riding that ramp right now i took a i i, I took a ride on the one out of woodward west um and I, I rode the mini mega uh at woodward east and i rode one in china but um yeah no it was never something that really you know um appealed appealed to me um but uh, I was definitely thankful to to be someone who could watch, you know, the the guys around him who he rode with on a regular basis do the most amazing things on them. Crazy. Well, all right. I think we should probably. I don't know. Yeah, it's like we're in hour three now. <laughs> I think we're at one forty-five. All right. Is there? Why are my podcasts always like marathon chat sessions? I mean, we've got tea in front of us, but maybe I think we should be. You know, propping up the bar in the local uh, microbrewery. There's a sheets across the street. We can check their fridge, see what yeah, they got. Yeah, well, I've got some Monster Energies in the fridge in the back room if uh, if we want to keep this thing alive. <laughs> so, how about for for round two? 
round two. two. Golly, is there going to be a round two? I Maybe mean, some you, other You're probably going to lose every one of your followers after this podcast, <laughs> just right. so you know. I don't think I have any anyway. <laughs> this just, is all for just, me. It, it, do yourself a favor, everybody. Just <laughs> replay the Robin Robinson one. Um, <laughs> she, she's got a ton of good energy in there. Uh, no, just joking. Fair it's, well, that was fun. I'm glad we got to do that. So I think that's yeah. a good place to uh, to yeah. call it. Um, no but worries. I appreciate you doing this for me. This was this was a lot of fun. Yeah. Uh, were, were they the only questions that Daniel Durs asked? I mean, the that's only thing, quite civil for Daniel Durs. I was expecting some fire. I was, I was expecting something way rougher than that. <laughs> well, maybe I tried to edit yeah. it for you if I could. Yeah. But. No, you know, I mean, you know, it, it's incredible how, you know, Daniel's turned out over the years. I mean, he's he's uh, a great ambassador for his sport. He's uh, an incredible rider. He's has the potential to be an Olympic athlete for Venezuela. And it is just absolutely remarkable that, you know, he started his humble beginnings in the English language by listening to Lil Wayne albums. Eminem, I think and, it was. Uh, and also Eminem. So, you know, um, back in his, uh, you know, former years, um, his vocabulary, let's say, was uh, <laughs> quite fruitful and unvaried. Crude. And crude and never strayed far from the great lyrics that were told by Lil Wayne. <laughs> the wisdom of Confucius yes. and Lil Wayne. All right. Well, Jamie, thank you very much. I appreciate yep. it. And I appreciate you guys. Thank you for listening. Uh, you keep listening. We'll keep cranking them out. We'll talk to you soon. This episode is brought to you by On Time. Do you have a friend or family member that is always late no matter what it is for or what time you tell them to be there? Now introducing the world's first watch that is set up to be fast. This is the perfect gift for those friends or family members that can never seem to be where they need to be on time. You can set this up one, two, three, or even four hours fast. So no matter what time you tell them to be there, they will be there on time.